Okay, let's get into this. Um, I think families are in trouble, but it's not that you don't love your children. Uh, you love your children. I, I see that all over the place. And occasionally there's, there are bad parents, of course. There's bad bankers and bad politicians and bad everything in, in life. But most of the parents I see, if I look at Bethany Community Church and even beyond Bethany Community Church, most of you really care a great deal about your children. Um, uh, but as far as Sarah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give Sarah's quote in more detail in a moment, but uh, uh, we still see the family in trouble. And just because you love your children doesn't mean you have the tools you need to have or doesn't mean we're going the directions we need to go. And uh, Christopher Dawson wrote way back in 1933, as in the decline of the ancient world, the family is steadily losing its form and its social significance, and the state absorbs more and more of the life of its members. This is in 1933. The functions which were formerly fulfilled by the head of the family are now taken over by the state, which educates the children and takes the responsibility for their maintenance and health. The father no longer holds a vital position in the family. He is often a comparative stranger to his children who knows him only as the man who comes for weekends. And that was, uh, he was particularly talking about the, the role of father. And we know the role of father is not the only role that's important in the family. Um, Sarah says, or Jefferson Bethke writes in his book, um, Taking Back the Family, we haven't acknowledged that we're living in an experiment. I call it an experiment for a reason. Across religions and cultures, the way we have operated to continually set up the family the last 150 to 200 years is as a springboard only for the individual success of each person, and it is a wild departure from how the family used to operate. So remember, uh, uh, Dan Burrell preached a few weeks ago about expressive individualism, how we, how we focus on the individual, the individual's happiness, the individual's, well, the individual's expre expressing their, their needs, their desires, their way. All of that has become paramount in American culture and Western civilization. And it started, like he, like he said, it started 150 years ago. It didn't just start. I, I know you, you think it started with... Uh, a, a certain presidential election, or you think it started in, uh, with the riots of the 60s or something like that, but it started a long time ago because it actually, it actually started in the Garden of Eden. When, uh, if you notice what Satan did, the first thing he did was he divided Adam and Eve. He didn't, he didn't go to Eve and say, Eve, uh, go get Adam. I want to talk to you guys about something. Let's have, let's have, I want to make sure you two are on the same page here and, and really want to do this, uh, this eat fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so you can be as God. Let's make sure Adam is a part of this. Now, he, he could have gone to Adam, I suppose. I, I don't know exactly why he went to Eve instead of Adam. It doesn't make Eve worse than Adam. I'm not trying to say that at all. Uh, uh, but uh, but the, the first thing he did was he, was he separated Eve from her husband. And he separated Eve from her God. The first thing he did was to deconstruct the family. And this is, in, in recorded history, we believe this happened about 6,000 years ago. So this problem, this problem of individualism, this problem of the individual being the locus of control, to use a psychological term, has been going on since the beginning of time. The problem is called, in theology, original sin. The original sin is to divide you from the rest of your family. 
The original sin is to split you up, divide you up, and everybody has their specialty, and you do not, as a family, have a cohesive mission that drives you. We're going to be talking more about it in the weeks to come. That idea of being a missional family, and not just a bunch of individuals all trying to be happy and fighting for the piece of the pie so you can all be happy. Now, there's nothing wrong with being happy. Be as happy as you can be and get as much happiness as you can and, and enjoy your life just as much as you can. But the mission of life cannot be to be happy. Sarah Johnson writes about this, how these movements have impacted society. And I'm not going to stay on the culture today. We're going to move to something very, very basic today that everybody, no matter what you, where you're at, you're going to be able to practice. Sarah Johnson writes about this, though. She said, I'm going to start with the bad news in her book, which I hope you will read, because even if it lands like a punch in the gut, the anticipation of some good news will hopefully soften the blow. At this moment, the United States, the, in the United States, the odds of our children walking with Jesus as adults are equivalent to that of a coin toss. The Fuller Youth Institute estimates that 50% of high school students actively involved in their churches walk away from their faith after graduation. Pay attention to that phrasing. It's not 50% of church high school students or those who attend church occasionally. It's 50% of teens who are actively involved in their churches. We're talking about 50% of our most committed youth groupers choosing to do life apart from Jesus as adults. I don't know about you, but this does not set well with me at all. I feel in my God every time I think about it, a churning discomfort that grows into a raging fire within me to do something. That's what she says, and that's who's going to be talking to us on Saturday. So uh, I want to say this. What the, this, what I'm about to say, is what this series is all about. Here's what it means. Reclaiming the family means to see parents serving under God as a primary source of direction and discipleship for their children. The local church in an irreplaceable role to equip parents for serving as the priest of their homes and fill the gaps created by a fallen and imperfect world. So that's what we're going to focus on. Now we're going to start, though, with something that's most, that the, the most biblically ignorant person in the room can do this this week. You can start it this afternoon. And I'm going to call it reclaiming the God moments with your children. Reclaiming the God moments. There's a lot of ways that the 21st century family justifies a series like this. But rather than hitting you with all of that out of the gate, I want to give you an action that you can immediately put into practice this afternoon to cause your children and your family to begin to experience God. The, the general brokenness of families in Western civilization didn't happen overnight. And we're not going to fix it overnight. But we are going to start a battle that we're going to win. Well, I, no, no, let me say that. Let me phrase that. Then you, can, then you can give the Lord praise. We're going to start a war that we expect to win. We may lose some battles, but we're not going to lose the war. Now, here we go. We're going to jump into Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1. And we're going to lay the groundwork for this activity of creating... God moments so your children can begin to experience God in your daily life. You see, we, we, we've gotten this idea, and part of, part of it is, it is cultural in Western civilization, is, is that whatever we need to learn, we learn in a classroom. 
So we, we set people in chairs looking at the back of one another's head, and a teacher writes things on the board or however and gives a lecture, and that's how we learn. But, but, and so we've tried to reproduce that in the church. We've tried to disciple that way. We invite people to discipleship classes, and I'm all for discipleship classes. We do one here, and you, you should go to it. John Wiersman teaches it, and it's very good. It's very good. There's, there's things you get in a class that are very important. But you notice when Jesus, uh, did, when Jesus, that's not how Jesus did discipleship. Jesus did life with people. And in the flow of life, he would talk to them about stuff. He would talk to them about what he was seeing in the culture around him. He would talk about the, the, what he was seeing in nature. He would correct them when they would say something that wasn't wise or something stupid. He would say, that was stupid. You shouldn't have said that. That was wrong. And uh, he would correct them on the spot. So discipleship doesn't happen in a classroom. And training happens in the flow of life when life is really happening. Discipleship and teaching happens in teachable moments. Teachable moments. And we're getting, these teachable moments are God moments. It's exactly what we tried to preach all summer about God stories. It's those times in your life when the God of eternity invades time and space. And everything freezes. And something so important happens that it's more important than anything that's happened to you all week. And hopefully you'll have a God moment today. Here we go. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. He didn't say impress them on your congregation. He said impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home. When you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. That's pretty immersive, wouldn't you say? <laughs> and when the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham. Notice, oh, I hope you get that. God puts everything in the context of family. I'm gonna, I swore to your father... Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, God saw the family as a unit. And that was, he flowed his purpose through the family. That's why the devil wants to break up families so much. Okay, so where do we want to start here today? I want to, I want to start with that water over there. Someone will bring me that cup of water. Uh, this windmill needs to be primed. <laughs> okay, number one, find your voice. Some of you parents have never found your voice spiritually. You, you, you get your kids to church, and that's a good thing. The church has a vital role to play, right? All those kids here today in children's church, really important, plays a very vital role. 
But the Bible says over and over, children, obey your parents. Let's read it. Let's read it. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, for this is the right thing to do. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you, and you will have a long life on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that the Lord, that comes from the Lord. He didn't, he didn't say, go get the pastor to instruct them, or go get the children's church pastor, or the youth pastor to instruct them. He didn't say that. He said, you begin to instruct them. And notice that our text back in Deuteronomy places the responsibility of spiritual conversations with the parents. It's not that there were no mentors or teachers outside of the family, but because there certainly was. Uh, There were elders and there were prophets and there were priests and there there was a big, uh, a whole community that was in on this. It's not that there wasn't, but there there was no... In the, and when, when this script Bible was written, when this scripture was written, there was no secular or religious superstructure for learning and instruction. And there was certainly no massive media, entertainment industry pumping their norms and their values into your children. Uh, you, as parents today, have unprecedented competition for the hearts and minds of your offspring. But God's word doesn't change. You know, some people, some people, when they think about restoring family values, and that's become a conservative uh, uh, trope, restore family values, and they want to take you back to 1950. I want to take you back to 1500 B.C. <laughs> I don't want to take you back to 1950, because 1950, we were already getting way off track. We were already getting way off course in 1950. And the American dream and modernism and materialism and all of that has had devastating results on the family. See, uh, the other day I I was with some of our team. We were at a a workshop for children in youth ministry. And a a young lady named Christian Ivey, a youth leader, spoke. And she, she told a little anecdote that really, really spoke to me about this. And it really hit me right in the heart because, um, you know, um, I love what I do and get to do as a pastor and been doing it for a very long time and I, I enjoy it so much and I, uh, I treasure the place that I have in some of your lives. And, uh, but but, but, but th- this was a, it, I, I'll admit it was a kind of a moment of reality for me too when she shared this anecdote. She said uh, she talked about how dedicated she was to youth ministry. She was a young, younger person in, in the church, and she was a volunteer. And she, she, she threw herself. She went to her, her youth pastor, and she wanted to start this. I believe it was, um, I believe it was junior high uh, young people that she said she started the ministry with. And she would meet after school with them, and she would uh, uh, you know, be in their home, have them in her home, and do all the things that great youth leaders do. And um, I appreciate, man, I appreciate Pastor Steve so much and Allie and uh, all the things. They're constantly do- doing something. I mean, a bunch of them showed up my, up at my house uh, for, uh, a night before last for salad, you know, and a progressive dinner thing. So they're always doing stuff. And it's just it's fantastic. Uh, Maxine does an incredible job. So, I, I, you know, yes, amen. Um, 
But she said, I, all these years, so, so she's got these, these kids from, I believe, junior high age to graduation. So she goes to a graduation party, one of the kids. And they're doing a family, you know, video, I mean, a, a, a pictorial collage of the kid's life. And they show all these pictures of the kid at, at parties and outings and family dinners and all this stuff. And she said, I notice I wasn't in any of the pictures. I have poured my life into this kid, and I was not in one single picture when they showed a picture of her life. And I realized who was in the picture was her family. Her family was in all the pictures. Her siblings, her parents, her grandparents, cousins, uncles, aunts. See, I've learned to say aunt. I, I couldn't say that years ago. It took, me, it took me 30 years to say aunt instead of aunt. But New Englanders say, well, that's something that crawls along the ground. You're not, it's not, not a relative. <laughs> but, but boy, when she told that the other day, I go, man, I, I, I've done the same thing. I poured my life into people, and I just wonder, why, why do they walk away from God all the time? Why do they walk away from church? Or, what, what did I do wrong? You know, I, don't they like me? <laughs> don't they think I'm awesome? Don't I preach good enough? Don't I, don't I work hard enough? And, and it's like, it hit me like, no, you are, yeah, sometimes you're the problem, of course, but, but the problem, the brokenness, the, the disconnect is not in the pastoral staff. I mean, you can have problems, pastoral staff, and we need to get better, so don't, you don't have to send me an email. <laughs> I know that, I know that. Uh, but the, the disconnect is at home. Uh, our homes... I'm not, I'm not speaking of your home specifically, but I would, generally speaking, our homes are not Christian. Generally speaking, our homes are not Christian. And, and, but, but here's a simple way you can, you can uh, here's a simple way you can fix this problem. You can start today. Find your voice. Begin to talk about God. Begin to capture God moments. Let me, get, let me tell you a, a, a little story about my mother. And she was so good at this. She was really, she wasn't, she wasn't a college graduate. Uh, she wasn't a scholar. She wasn't, uh, she was, you know, she was average intelligence and maybe even more, but she wasn't, she wasn't professional and all, all this kind of stuff. But she loved God, man. She loved Jesus with all of her heart. And she loved her kids. She loved me and my brother with all of her heart. And my dad, my dad wasn't quite as good as this, at this as my mother was. And he was, he, was a good, he was a godly man. And I'll tell you some things about my dad later on that really impressed me and helped me to embrace the Christian faith. But, but today, I'll have to feature mom because she was the best at capturing God moments and creating God moments where you actually experience God. You didn't just hear about God, but you experienced God. So one day, uh, a dollar disappeared from her purse. Now, you got to remember, this is 60-something years ago. And a dollar, you could buy a hamburger for 15 cents. You could buy dinner for a dollar. You could buy a shirt for a dollar. You could go to the movies for 50 cents. So a dollar disappearing, we didn't have a lot of money. You know, we were on the poorer side of everything. And some people say I was poor and didn't know it. Well, I know it. 
I was poor and I knew it. And I saw everything, all the toys my cousin had and motorcycle and horses and everything, and I didn't have any of that stuff, right? So we knew. So this dollar was a big deal so, to her, and uh, my brother had stolen it out of her purse. He was a little boy, and he'd taken the dollar, put it in his pocket. And she goes, <laughs> Joe, we got to pray. Mom has to have that dollar. Let's get on our knees. And she made him get on his knees, and she got on her knees, and she began to intercede before God. God, show us where that dollar is. God, you know I can't afford to lose that dollar. And Joe, while their eyes were closed, he slips the dollar out of his pocket, and he sticks it in the cushion of the couch where they were kneeling, and he taps my mom on the shoulder. Hey, Mom, look, I found it. <laughs> And, of course, uh, there's those supernatural moments that, I, that, that may be a little harder for you to go home and duplicate, but I'll bet if you'll start to listen to God, you will. You know, Joe evidently had a problem with money because another time there was money missing, and she had a vision. In her vision, she saw a drawer where the money was, and she goes to the drawer, and there was in Joe's drawer, and there was the money. Uh, well, you, you, may, you can't duplicate that, but if you walk with God long enough, you, you will be able to. But you see what my mother did with that dollar bill? Uh, it was brilliant. It was, it was absolutely brilliant. She, she, and, and she could have just disciplined him, and that would have been, that would have been appropriate. We'll talk about that later. But, uh, but she, she turned it into a God moment. She turned it into a God moment. Uh, I, I remember one time, uh, Joe had these uh, warts on his arm. And they were sitting on the couch. I remember this vividly. As I, was, I was younger. I was six years younger than Joe. I, I don't know what. He must have been 12 or 13 when this happened. And she just out of the blue, she lays her hands on those warts. And she says, I'm going to pray. And she prayed that God would take the warts away. A week later, they were gone. You know? Are you, that, are you the kind of person that can pray with your kid? That's all I'm asking you to become today. I'm not asking you to learn theology. I'm not asking you to be able to explain uh, Arminianism versus Calvinism. I'm not asking you to be able to explain pre-trib rapture versus post-trib rapture. I'm not asking you to, to explain in, uh, the, the, the 40 weeks of Daniel. I'm not asking you to explain any of that. I'm just asking you, are you, do you have a voice that can speak for and about God to your child? And are you ready and willing to make things spiritual in your home? Okay? Uh, so find your voice. And I'll give you one more thing I want you to do. I want you to respect your anointing. Anointing means chosen by God. Anointed means the one with the power and the authority. You have the power and you have the authority. When, when people come to me for counseling... And, and they're, they're, they're having problems. I'm telling you, it's like 99% of the time they're going to get around to talking about their dad or their mom. And usually that's about their dad. Usually it's what dad didn't do or what dad did that he shouldn't have done. They, they, I have never, in, in 40 years of pastoring and meeting people for, for counseling, I've never had a person come into my office and say, let me tell you about my pastor. <laughs> I was really doing well before with my pastor. No, 
it's always dad, always mom. Sometimes it's a sibling, but it's usually dad, mom or dad. That's, that's because God anointed you to be their authority. You are the umbrella of power and protection over their life. And no matter how much I love God and how much I study and how much I preach, I cannot be your child's covering. You are their covering. Amen? Church leaders have the indispensable role of being your spiritual guide while you have the indispensable role of being your child's spiritual guide. Notice from me, Deuteronomy 6 didn't say you don't need the elders, Levites, priests, or Moses. He didn't say you don't need them. You, 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 can, be, you can be the church at home. No. They still went to offer sacrifices. They still honored the elders. They still brought the elders in. When their children got out of control, they literally brought the elders in. And I won't even, I won't even talk about that because it will, it, would, it will upset some of you when you realize how much they respected the elders. But when it came to, to God talk and God moments in the daily life of the person, it was the parents, not, not the priest or not Moses. Respecting your anointing means you feel the full weight of your responsibility. Modern Christian parents... Overfocus. Modern Christian parents overfocus on kids getting saved. And, they, and, and often even delegate that responsibility. My mother wasn't going to take any chances on the pastor blowing his assignment. We, we, in those days, we didn't have projection and all this fancy stuff, we had little figures that you stick on a flannel board. That's how you told stories to kids. Remember, some of you remember those? Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. My mother had her own set of flannel graph stories. She had her own gospel stories. And she'd say, Phil, come in. I want to tell you about Jesus. And she would start putting those. We had a fuzzy couch, and it worked just like a flannel, flannel board. And the, those, those images would stick. And she would walk me through the language of Timothy. And, and at the end, and I, I remember, I was five years old. She would say, now are you ready to accept Jesus as your personal Savior? And I would say, no. <laughs> really, I said, no. I, I rejected the call to salvation many, many times from my mother. And then one Sunday night at church, the pastor gave the altar call. We called them altar calls in those days. We had a wooden altar down front. And I, I went forward. He, he thought he was really good. But it was my mother that had... I was just trying to build his ego. Respecting the anointing means you take your job of parenting seriously and you're always looking for counsel on how to be the best you can be. Obviously, a man like Tiger Woods had some natural talent. I know that's true because you can work hard at trying to be a good golfer. You can take lessons and, and work really hard at it, but you're still not going to hit the ball like Tiger did in his prime. Tom Brady obviously had some skills, uh, athletic skills. He was, a, he was a really good baseball player. He was a really good football player, as we all know. You know what those two men had in common? Larry Bird, anybody you want to talk about? They all, had, they all got teaching and instruction. And they all were made to practice 
under the, supervi- under the supervision of people who couldn't, who did not have the talent that they had. Under the supervision of people, I, don't, I doubt if Bill Belichick can throw the ball 40 yards in the air. But he can coach people that throw it 70, 80 yards in the air. So, parent, you're the one with the anointing. I don't have the anointing for your kids, but you do. I have the anointing for you, but not for your kids, right? I'm, I'm, I, that needs qualification. I won't try to unpack that. Respecting your anointing means you refuse to carry yourself with fear and insecurity regarding your role in your child's life. You stop carrying yourself with fear and insecurity, and you start carrying yourself with boldness because you're anointed. After God anointed David king, he had the authority to be king. In fact, the reason he was able to kill Goliath is because he was anointed of God, because God had authority. It wasn't that rock and it wasn't that sling. He could have spit on that giant and he'd have died. Because he had the anointing. Respecting your anointing means you understand that defiance is deadly. So you take it seriously. Now, I believe in uh, caring and managing the emotions of your children. I believe in being kind. I, I believe in all of that. But today we've come up with this uh, phrase. It's called um, emotional reasoning. Have you heard of this? Emotional reasoning. Um, emotional reasoning is, uh, it's, uh, it goes like this. Uh, it, emotional reasoning, uh, one, if, if, you, if you look it up in, uh, in uh, if you look it up in uh, Wikipedia, if you look up the word emotional reasoning, reasoning it gives the example of a, of a husband who, who's, who's faithful. Or, or there's no evidence that he's unfaithful. But the wife says, I know you're unfaithful because I feel it. I feel jealous. And therefore, I know you're unfaithful. So no matter what he says, her emotions are, are, are what, what establishes truth. And that's what we've done, and it's got into parenting. In fact, I'll, I'll, get, I'll read you an example of emotional reasoning that got into parenting. It's actually got into parenting way before these researchers came up with it. This is recent that the researchers came up with it. But I've, I've been dealing with emotional reasoning for 30 years. It goes like this. When a child is angry, for example, we might be tempted to respond by giving a firm consequence, such as a timeout or by removing something that the child likes, such as a prized uh, toy or technology time. But listen, you're about to learn something that I hope you forget. But a parent who mentalizes, everybody say mentalizes. Did you know there was such a thing, Scott? Have you been mentalizing lately? (laughs) The parent who mentalizes uh, I, wait a minute, I lost my place here. Let me find my place. It's just, this is so disturbing. I can't, I can't find my place. Uh, but the parent who mentalizes may see the hurt underneath the child's outward anger and respond in a way that directly addresses that pain and gets to the root of the problem. Well, there's a place for, for some of that. But you know what the root of the problem 
of your child. It's the same root of your problem. They're rebellious. They're rebellious. The room got really quiet because you don't want to face that, that your child is rebellious against God. Your child does not want to obey authority, and you don't want to obey authority. I don't want to obey authority. Why are you being so quiet? Have you ever heard of original sin? Original sin is that acknowledges the fact that we are rebellious and we do bad stuff not just because we're in pain. We do bad stuff because we don't like to be told what to do. We are rebellious against God. Jesus didn't die on the cross for people who were in emotional pain. Jesus didn't die on the cross for people who were upset. Jesus didn't die on the cross for people who couldn't process their feelings. Jesus died on the cross for people who were sinners. A sinner is someone who rebels against God. A, some, a, a sinner is someone who doesn't, who, who, who doesn't like God, who doesn't like God telling them what to do, who doesn't like the laws of God, who doesn't like the restrictions of God. That is what a sinner is. And if you can't become a Christian if you don't first become a sinner. And your children are sinners. That's what my mother understood. She never took a psychology course, but she read the Bible. And she understood I was a sinner, that I needed Jesus. And the one thing, my mother was from the kindest, sweetest person. She was too kind sometimes to me. She didn't push me hard enough at school. She didn't push me. My dad didn't either. They didn't push me in a lot of areas. But one thing, one thing, if I wanted to have a war, is I'd defy her. I, and defiance is different than, than being foolish. You know, breaking a lamp because you're playing and being stupid. Defiance is when you're told to do something and your child says no. That's defiance. And I know that what I'm preaching is not popular today, and I know that if the people out there watching, uh, uh, watching through the uh, Internet are probably going, I'm done with him because he doesn't, understand, he doesn't understand that my child is in pain. Well, I do believe there's emotional pain. That's a whole other thing we can talk about at another time. But you are not going to raise a child who obeys God if you don't teach him to obey you. I said, you are not going to raise a child who will obey God if they are not made to obey you. It, God made you his representative in their life. Let's do the third thing here today, and that's practice the concept of redeeming time. I know that's too heavy for some of you. Just, just think about it. You want to call me up? I'll be glad to talk to you more about it. Practicing the concept of redeeming time. Most of ev- mo- make the most of every chance you get. These are desperate times, the Message Bible says. Moses turned aside to see the burning bush. That's what it means to redeem the time. Moses was doing his job, being the shepherd that he was, not thinking about God necessarily. He saw a bush that burned, and he turned. the Bible says he turned aside to see... And he had a God moment that would change history. That's what we're talking about. These God moments are sometimes referred to 
uh, some people refer to them as kairos moments because there's two different words for time. There's chronos, which is chronology. One thing follows another. You came to church, and now you're going to go grab some food, and you, now you're going to watch the ball game, and that, that, that's, the, that's the thing. You know, you're going to do that. That's, chrono, that's chron, chronological time, but kairos time, it, the, the, word, the, the word that's used in Ephesians 5.16 is make the most of every opportunity is what the New International Version, the King James Bible, makes the most, make the most of opportunity. So Kairos time is opportunity. It's opportunity. So that's what it means to capture Kairos times is when you, 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 when you know there's a moment in my child's life, like my mother, See, it's okay not to always bring out the big guns and discipline them when they obey. If you can be as creative as my mother was and say, let's get on our, our knees and pray to God, if you can be that creative, that you're bringing God. One time when I was rebellious as a teenager, a knock came on my door, and my mother was standing on the other side of the door. And she came in, I was laying on my bed, she had her Bible open in Isaiah chapter 57. And it says, she said, I want to read a verse to you, Phil. Well, what is it, Mom? Thou art rebellious, but I will heal his ways. <laughs> now, that's bringing out the big gun. When you bring God into the picture of your child's life, let it sink in. The God moments, you know, the disciples had fished all night and caught nothing. And Jesus shows up and says, uh, I want you to, cast on the right side of the boat. And the disciples said, uh, we fished all night and caught nothing. Now, do what I say. So they threw on the right side of the boat and they caught so many fish they broke their necks and they had to get, other, they had to get help. That's a God moment. And so if you will begin to have God moments in your child's life, you will break strongholds of the enemy that hours of lecture won't do because you're bringing God into their lives. So that's all I'm really asking you to do today. And so, let's do it. Let that sink in. God in the moment, you can fish all night and catch nothing, but a God moment can overflow your nets with one cast in a moment. Amen? Let's stand. Uh, Abraham, I'm just going to ask you to come to the keyboard. And I, I was going to invite you forward, but uh, I can see my time has kind of gotten away, so... Uh, that's my fault. I, I do want to pray for you, families. So I, I'd like for you to uh, just get, let's give everybody some privacy uh, this moment because this, this may not be something that you want everybody in the room to know, and it's okay. Let's, so let's close our eyes, bow our heads. How many of you, and I'm going to keep my eyes open. I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell anybody that you raised your hand. But how many of you say, Pastor, uh, my family needs prayer today. Raise your hand. We're, we're in some stress today. And uh, leave your hand up for a minute, please. I, I hope that nothing I said today, nothing I said today would condemn you. Or nothing I said today would make you uh, feel like I'm coming down on you. Or I certainly don't want you to think that me, Sherry and I have it all together and we're just, we're just perfect parents or running a perfect family. We need this series too, and we need to grow, and we need to get better. And just because I'm looking at 70 years of age in the next short period of time doesn't mean I'm still not a dad, and I'm a granddad, and I still have a huge job to do. 
in keeping my family focused and on track. So you're going to keep that hand up for a moment, and I'm going to pray for you. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray for the hands that are raised. I pray for the families that are in distress, and the families, some, some it's, it's just a speed bump, and somebody here is going off the cliff with their family. And I pray in the name of Jesus that you will enter into their family story and you will disrupt the plans of the enemy for their family story and you will bring God moments and a God story out of the God moments and change our lives in the name of Jesus. Amen.